Hello, I'm Daniel. And I'm Liz. And welcome to A Dose of Dizzy. Your accessible but digestible dose of vestibular research. March and welcome back. It has been a busy last couple months. <laughs> it's officially spring. Yes, and the spring is busy, especially if you're in vestibular world, especially if you're in research world. Um, I know Daniel and I just recently got back from American Balance Society, which was in Scottsdale, Arizona, in February. We didn't just get back, but it feels like yeah, we it just feels got like back. it. We did, and you know what? Typically, when we go down there, it's beautiful weather, but I feel like it was it was raining. Yeah. And it was pretty chilly for Scottsdale in February. For sure. It's a little weird. odd, but that's okay. We still had a good time. It's nice to get back into the conference scene, especially in person, because I know we've had a lot of virtual replacements for the last couple of years. So it was a really great conference. Um, I know we've talked about it before, but if you've never been, definitely should go, especially if you're a physical therapist. I've been telling PTs that I've got gotten to know that this would be a great conference to go to if you're interested in vestibular definitely it's i think over the years we have seen a growth in how many physical therapists actually attend um yeah. abs and i think it's a wonderful opportunity to network and collaborate with our other vestibular colleagues and daniel is now on the board so maybe we'll get the inside but <laughs> you know one of the greatest things that i've enjoyed that abs has started they started last year is is a monthly journal club from March to October. So it's starting this month and it definitely highlights, you know, especially why we started a dose of dizzy just to keep active in the research and to get, you know, keep in touch with your vestibular colleagues. So if you want to join as a member, you can be a part of that journal club. I know I try to hop on when I can. Yeah. So Liz, uh, tell us a little bit about your presentation. Oh yeah. It was exciting. I always try to push myself to present cause I think it's a very good challenge, but um, my presentation was on something that hopefully will come up in the concussion realm, not in the future, but it's something called anti-saccades. And I had talked about this on our concussion episode in the past, but it's just a high level cognitive evaluation that uses ocular motors as the measurement tool. Uh, we all are familiar with the saccade, but the anti-saccade uh, involves you moving your eyes the opposite direction of where the dot goes. So we have been collecting normative data, my clinic along with four other ones. And so we were able to present on the normative findings and it's super exciting because this will eventually, hopefully in the next couple months, get incorporated in the software and then everybody can do it. Everyone so, can do anti-saccades. It's so exciting. Saccades, evil twin. I know. Better twin. <laughs> Better twin. Um, what about you? Yeah, you had a presentation. Well, I did. Uh, surprise, surprise. It was about vamps. <laughs> um, Always. But no, I'm trying to um, incorporate or look at basically the behavior of object objective detection algorithms and VAMPs. And so this sort of uh, presentation was particularly looking at the uh, effect of gaze angle on objective detection. So we're trying to validate its use in VAMPs for uh, potentially incorporating it as screening measures in the future. But uh, this is just one more presentation that's kind of part of a, a larger journey um, of, you know, looking at objective detection. Yeah, I was joking with Daniel when we were like sitting down because I'm like every year there's always a section on VEMPs. Like I feel like there's like four or five presentations and it's kind of some of the same people, but Daniel's always one that's uh, presenting <laughs> on VEMPs. But it's, it's so important because it is a relatively new test in the realms of vestibular especially. Um, so we need more data to help us figure out how to use them the best we can. So it was a great presentation. Absolutely. So today, tell us what we're talking about. 
All right. Well, we are talking about bedside testing. Yes. So the majority of our episodes have really covered, you know, different, um, not only vestibular disorders, but particularly on the assessment side of things, using some of this fancy equipment to objectively quantify um, you know, measurements of, of the VOR, horizontal and vertical VOR, you know, we use a lot of the times we're using fancy goggles to, you know, pick up eye movements to really kind of give us some insight into how the vestibular system is functioning. But bedside testing in and of itself is going to be more of an informal assessment of the vestibular system and really try to, um, help you gather some information about the integrity of the vestibular system without the use of any clinical equipment. Absolutely. And I feel like this has been something we've been asked to do by a lot of people, because if you're not in vestibular, a vestibular lab with all the equipment, or if you are low on technology or supplies, this is a very appropriate time to consider bedside evaluation. But, you know, some other reasons you may consider besides not having all this expensive equipment is you may want a preview of where the potential origin of a disorder is. So even if you're a primary care doctor uh, listening, or if you're a student or physical therapist, this can really give you a quick insight on if it's a possible peripheral issue going on or not a peripheral issue going on. Um, Very important if you're not a vestibular audiologist can give you a quick idea on who you may want to refer your patient to. And, you know, some of these evaluations really align well with what the patient is functionally experiencing. So we talk a lot about, for example, like calorics, one of the tests that we use all the time. It's maybe not the most functional assessment of the patient. It helps us get an idea of what's going on uh, with their system, but it just doesn't align well with maybe what they're experiencing on a daily basis. So bedside testing might be a little bit closer to what the patient is experiencing and you can uh, get a good idea of what's going on. So you may also be wondering what is considered an actual bedside um, test. Well, these are typically going to be more screening measures. It's not going to necessarily give you, you know, some more traditional parameters that we are used to in vestibular audiology, such as, you know, measurements of VOR gain, phase, symmetry. These are more going to be used for screening. So it's going to be more of a positive or negative result. and like uh, Liz had mentioned, these are you know more informal type of testings that can give you can, that can give the clinician some idea about what's going on. Um, it's also important to remember that bedside testing in and of itself are is really not going to pick up those very mild or moderate types of vestibular impairments. Mm-hmm. These are going to be really um, and so these are going to be more or less. Uh, useful when detecting large um, asymmetries or large impairments to the system. Um, So just another thing to keep in mind uh, when we talk about some of the sensitivity and specificity of these of these measures. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's a really good point to bring up because you just because you're doing a bedside evaluation, you may be missing a mild impairment. That's how how large does asymmetry need to be for a lot of these to be picked up? Typically, um, you know, it it does vary, but typically a good rule of thumb is that the impairment has to be about 40 to 50 percent before they start getting picked up on some of the more, um, you know, traditional bedside evals. Yeah. And we have to think, you know, a lot of we talk a lot in vestibular science about being in a gaze denied condition versus, uh, you know, a vision enabled. All these bedside evaluations are in usually a well lit room where the patient is seeing you. So that can help. 
uh, or kind of hide, I guess, some things that you may pick up under a pair of video goggles. Definitely. So we're going to start talking about all the different bedside evaluations that you, you can do. And I feel like we'll cover the major ones. There's obviously a lot of tests that have been tried, uh, but these are probably the most often that people use for a bedside evaluation. Um, to begin, the first most simple thing that you can do with your eyes on their eyes is look for the presence of spontaneous or gaze evoked nystagmus. And, you know, sometimes if you're lucky enough to see an acute vestibular neuritis patient, which is like, I feel like the coolest thing, I love seeing them, um, you can sometimes even see a spontaneous nystagmus just looking at them doing a case history. Um, so that's the first thing to look at. Are their eyes moving uh, without them wanting to move? Yep. You can, yeah, go ahead. No, I was going to say, and just to remind everyone out there that nystagmus is this rhythmic oscillation of the eyes where the eyes will um, sort of drift uh, because of the imbalance that exists between the left and right vestibular systems and uh, followed by a subsequent uh, corrective saccade or a what we call the fast phase um, so you have this rhythmic oscillation of the eyes that just exists between because there is an asymmetry in the system. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, to kind of validate if you think you're seeing a spontaneous nystagmus, you could use your finger or pen and have the patient follow your uh, pen or finger to the left and right. Um, and looking for the increase, that's in Alexander's Law, you increase the, the amount of nystagmus in the direction of the nystagmus. So you could look right and left, you could look up and down. Um, and that might just be the quickest way to check if there's nystagmus present in any of those conditions. Um, so you would just say probably the presence or absence of nystagmus. And that kind of leads us into sort of our main um, first of many bedside evaluations. But this one is uh, going to be used quite a bit. It was, yeah. you know, it's one of the older bedside evaluations. And it is the basis for one of our more newer vestibular assessments, the video head impulse test. So the video head impulse test is, you know, we, we put on some fancy goggles, we measure, we move their head, uh, the patient's heads, the patient's head in short little uh, All bursts. their heads. <laughs> yes. Um, short little bursts while they fixate on an earth fixed target. So remove the video goggles and you were doing a bedside head, head impulse test. So again, the fixation, you have the fix, uh, the patients are instructed to fixate on an earth fixed target. Typically, this is going to be the examiner's nose. And you uh, put your pa your hands on either side of their jaw and you just move their head in short little uh, twitches from side to side. Um, you're basically just looking for the presence of any corrective saccades. Now, if there is a large vestibular impairment present, the eyes will not be able to maintain uh, fixation on the examiner's nose uh, because of retinal slip. It could be the VOR is not able to do that because there is underlying damage. And so the ocular motor system will then take over and um, create a corrective saccade or a catch-up saccade back onto the examiner's nose. And um, if the impairment is large enough, this may be um, easy, easy to, to visually see with the naked eye. Yeah. And it also could be easy to miss as well if yes, you're not used to can. looking at it and, you know, if the patient blinks and all those aspects. But, yeah, that I feel like that's the most commonly used bedside eval just that I hear people talking right. about. Right. Because a lot of vestibular audiologists will do this in addition. You know, they'll start out with this and then do more of their formal assessments. Definitely. So, Liz, tell us about head shake. 
It's exactly as it sounds. Every time I like get to that point of testing with my patient, I'm like, we're going to do a test. That is exactly what it sounds like. So you're essentially shaking the patient's head left, right. Like they're saying no for about at about a two hertz speed uh, for about 20 seconds. And really after you're done shaking their head, you're looking for the presence of any nystagmus after the head stops. Um, we do this as part of our VNG evaluation, but again, it's something you can do bedside. Um, and just as we were talking about that asymmetry that may be present in the vestibular system, it's the same thing with head shake. As long as you're shaking at a consistent speed, as soon as you stop, um, there's a possibility that you may have a nystagmus if there is that tonic asymmetry present. And I know you have a really good example, Daniel, to share about this. Yeah. So I, I always like to think of this as, um, like a charge of the vestibular system. So if you think of like, just like batteries charging while you're shaking your head from side to side, you're consistently building up a charge at the level of the vestibular nuclei. And if there is a, if both vestibular systems are sending equal amounts of information, once you stop moving, that charge is going to cancel out. You ne don't necessarily expect any one side to um, any basically tonic imbalance of neural firing. Um, however, if there is a vestibular impairment present, one side is being charged and the other is not. And so when that head stops, there is an exacerbation of this tonic imbalance that is um, there creating this nystagmus that could be visible um, following the, you know, once the head has stopped. And, you know, there's there's gross ways to evaluate this. You know, you, you typically, I think, if the nystagmus goes longer than six seconds after the head shake, it could be a positive head shake. But you can also pick up some very um, unusual central patterns mm -hmm. with uh, head shake which I, I, that's one of the uh, more advantages of head shake is it allows you to um, identify potentially central findings such as what, what they call cross coupling. So if you, once you stop the head, if you, if there is nystagmus present or if there's vertical nystagmus that starts after the head is stopped, that is a huge central finding uh, because we expect any nystagmus um, to be horizontal or in the plane of the canal that's stimulated. Yeah. And typically, you know, if you do see an astagmus, either in, you know, this bedside evaluation or under the pair of video goggles, um, the nystagmus usually moves in the direction um, of the stronger side. So in opposite of the affected ear. So that can give you a quick evaluation of which is the affected side if you have suspected vestibular impairment. Great. So now that we've covered some of the uh, first two main bedside evaluations. Liz, why don't you tell us about another oldie but goodie, which is uh, <laughs> dynamic visual acuity. Yeah, so this is another example, just kind of like our HIT test. This is another example that has become a little bit more technically um, advanced. So you can do it as low tech as you want or as high tech as you can afford, but it's called dynamic visual acuity testing. Um, the most basic way to use it, all of you, all you need is a Snellen chart, which is a basic eye evaluation chart. If you've ever seen them, it has the big old E at the top and then the letters get smaller as you go down. So those are very inexpensive. Um, but the basic idea of dynamic visual acuity is it is a functional evaluation of the VOR, the vestibular ocular reflex at everyday head movement speeds. My patients love this test. I do it on every concussion evaluation I ever do. And if the patient ever said quick head movements make them dizzy, I will absolutely do this test because 
what you're doing is you're essentially comparing how they see their visual acuity, how well they can see when their head is perfectly still versus in a movement condition. And, you know, most of the time, I think this is done both horizontal and vertical head movements. Uh, but I think horizontal may be a little bit more popular. Ultimately, you instruct the patient to move their head, usually to some sort of metronome beat. Um, and they do a total of about 30 degrees of movement, but it's 15 degrees to the left, 15 degrees to the right on average. And essentially, while they're moving their head, they're supposed to be reading the letters. And they're supposed to read the smallest letters that they can see on the Snellen chart. And ultimately, the results, if there is more than a two-line difference in the static versus dynamic condition. So if when their head is still, they can read line five, but then when they start moving their head, they move up to a larger font size. Uh, that could be considered reduced dy dynamic visual acuity because as soon as you start moving their head, their vision gets blurry. So the underlying mechanism that actually sort of is the cause of why we observe this difference between the st static and dynamic condition has to do with this idea of retinal slip uh, during movement. So the VOR, um, just to kind of reiterate, its job is to really, you know, keep visual targets in focus during head movements. And so if there is damage to this, the VOR uh, reflex pathway, when the head is moving, it's not able to do that. And so there is um, a sort of a discrepancy in focus, visual focus, when, um, you know, someone is absolutely still uh, versus when their head is moving. So again, a lot of these uh, bedside evaluations try to um, pick up on these um, retinal slips that are occurring. And one of the most common questions I get from like patients and students who are with me is, do, does the patient need to wear their glasses for DVA? Um, it honestly doesn't really matter as long as they keep the same condition throughout static and dynamic. So um, I usually try to have the patient be in their best seeing condition. So if they have glasses, they should keep them on. Uh, but as long as they uh, stick with the same condition, then it doesn't really matter. Right. Do you want to talk about our next one? It's a good... Sure. It's a good one. Yeah, it's a good one. Um, not the best sensitivity, <laughs> but you, as it's been around for a learn. while. Yeah. But when it works, or when it aligns with, uh, you know, some of your other uh, test measures, it's it can it can complement a lot of things. So sure. Um, this one is the Fukuda step test. Uh, basically, what you're instructing the patient to do is to stand and march in place with their hands at their sides. Uh, typically, um, it's recommended to at least let them go for 50 steps. Um, and they are doing with this with their eyes closed. So they are not um, in tune with any visual, visual cues during this test. And basically, all you're looking for is a, at least a 45-degree turn to any one side. Um, it can be to either side. So if you see a 45 degree turn, um, that will be considered abnormal. And But it's also important to remember that any, um, you know, orthopedic um, disorders or anything affecting the postural system um, could easily affect uh, the, the results of this test. I once had a patient who was like doing the test and she's like, by the way, like I have always had one leg that is shorter than the other. Is that a problem? And I'm like, 
It's I'm, no, it's not a problem, but like it is for my for my interpretation of this test because turns yeah. out she turned towards her shorter leg, which makes sense. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you have to be aware of that, especially with like hip replacements. People kind of march a little differently. So the mechanism behind this, um, again, is that tonic imbalance. Uh, the patient, you know, when there is the imbalance of the vestibular system, they are expected to go to one side or the other, and they should should turn towards their affected side. Right. But I they always don't like, always. <laughs> yeah, they don't always. That is not, I mean, it's just a general rule of thumb, but I always like to think of it as like if you were driving uh, a car with a flat tire on one side, you'd, you'd expect that car to to drift towards the side that is flat. And yeah. so, um, but again, that like rarely happens yeah. during this test. So, so just it, remember yeah. flat tire, shorter leg. Those are the only things you need there to you remember. Go. And then you there got you to go. the step. Yep. All right. What about our next one here? This is another balance of L. Yeah. Our modified cat sib. Um, this is a pretty commonly used um, evaluation basically your if anybody's had if anybody has had um any um you know experience with the sensory organization test it kind of has a bunch of different conditions this is kind of um the i guess the uh, discounted um <laughs> way of testing yes. um the sensory organization test but um basically you're you're having the patient it's a more of a balance evaluation and you're having the patient stand there uh, with their eyes open their eyes closed um, on a firm and then more of a dynamic surface um, there is typically for that dynamic piece uh, one would need a foam pad to complete this evaluation but it, it is very low tech um, and so that's why we still consider it more of a bedside evaluation yeah, and this, just like our many other balance evaluations, we're looking at those input systems, so the vestibular, the visual, the proprioceptive, and seeing you know what combination the patient may fail in. Um, so for example, if the patient is standing on a foam surface, so we're taking away uh, their proprioceptive inputs, or at least reducing them, and then we have them close their eyes, so reducing visual, and they fall, you have a higher suspicion for vestibular impairment or you know impact. There's other um, balance evaluations, too, that I know a lot of people use on the bedside, uh, the get up and go test. Isn't that one you use a lot, Daniel? Yeah, I've used that one in the past where you're looking for, you know, greater than, um, I think it's 13 seconds or something yeah, like I think that. that's right. Yep. Um, you may be considered a risk for falls. Yep. Um, so there's, there's a ton of different screening measures that you can choose from, and these are just more or less highlighting the more common... Yeah types of evaluations that you may want to include in, in your assessment. And again, the, you know, the whole purpose of this is trying to determine maybe where the impairment is coming from so that you can determine what tests would need to be completed, who would need to complete them, or what interventions would need to be you know, considered. Uh, let's talk about a couple less common tests that are used bedside. I don't know if I've ever used either one of these on the bedside without video goggles. Yeah, I, I have not, um, but there is, uh, I mean, why don't you walk us through the hyperventilation-induced yeah. nystagmus? So the first one I use under video goggles occasionally, but it's hyperventilation-induced nystagmus is what you're looking for. And honestly, you instruct the patient to hyperventilate. And there's if you look this up, it's really easy. But um, you have the patient start doing really deep and fast breathing for about 30 seconds. 
and then they stop and you look for any presence of um, nystagmus. And I think I've used this under video goggles when they're in like a supine position uh, more so. I think it could be really difficult to pick up on this just on the bedside. And then the other one I have, I don't think I've ever done on the bedside, Valsava induced nystagmus, but again, looking for nystagmus after the patient Valsavas. Right. Yeah. It's pretty um, self-explanatory where you just are really trying to, you know, increase the intracranial pressure and seeing right. if, if that could um, induce some type of nystagmus could give you some indication of possibly maybe some third window type stuff going on. But yeah. again, I think, um, more or less very gross screener yeah. of uh of just like Liz had mentioned giving you some type of preview or just you know giving yeah. you any indication as to what might you you know what might you find on other um you know test measures that we use to screen for third window so what could yeah. you find on uh, on a vent threshold screening or um different things like that but again there's 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 a wide variety of different um bedside evaluations that you could choose from. For sure. And, you know, I think one, looking at all these bedside tests we just talked about, one thing to know is even though you're not using fancy equipment, it doesn't, you know, discredit the information that you can gain from these assessments. Um, just because you don't have maybe a number associated to whatever you've just measured, it's still really critical and can definitely be reported in your report as something that's significant. We would love to hear from you if you have, first of all, done any of these bedside evaluations or if there's any that you really like to use. And especially if there's one that you use on a regular basis that we did not cover, please let us know because again, we're not the most, we're the people who uh, use equipment the most. So um, yes. if you have any that we have missed, please send them to us. And especially if you have a video of you or you know, you and a student or anybody doing a bed, one of these bedside evaluations or trying them out, please send it to us. We'd love to highlight you on our account. Um, if you have a patient in your, please please don't have a patient, a real patient in your uh, video <laughs> because that just gets a little bit more complicated. But we'd love to highlight you on our account if you try one of these out, um, or if you have a video or a picture of you doing this. That would be so cool to see. Yeah, that would be absolutely wonderful, and we would really really appreciate it. Um, for, you know, especially getting this from people that maybe perform bedside testing way more yeah. than, than us. So, sure. um, so yeah, that was a pretty short and sweet episode, but we uh, say short, it's still 25 it's minutes still long. Like 20. We're so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome well, yeah, to our conversation. That is true. Um, so yeah, no, thank you everyone for again, listening with, to another episode of a dose of dizzy. Um, yeah. next week we're continuing the, uh, spring conference push. Uh, the AAA is probably one of the bigger uh, audiology conferences of the year, um, and it's going to be in St. Louis this year. And so we, Liz and I, will both be there. We'll be wearing the Dose of Dizzy T-shirts. You can spot us. <laughs> Um, oh my gosh, maybe. <laughs> um, but uh, Liz is going to be part of a wonderful, wonderful vestibular panel on Thursday at two, um, mm -hmm. and I will be presenting uh, on Friday around around noon. Um, I still have to check that time, but it's, it's around that time. Uh, <laughs> Look so, us up. <laughs> yes. And if you are a student listening out there, the SAA conference is on Wednesday, um, the 20 or the 30th. Um, it's pretty much an all day thing. And it is, we had, there's a wonderful slate of presenters. 
Um, if you're a student in audiology, you'll gain so much from attending this conference. So I highly encourage you to attend if you are going to be um, at AAA and if you're going to be there on Wednesday. Yeah. And I think, you know, one thing we talked about a long time ago on how we met was through the SA conference committee. So we both love the SA conference. Yes. It's just a great way to learn if you're a student. It's super affordable. And um, Daniel and I both also serve as advisors for the SA. So we love students. We love supporting students. If you're not a national SA member, you definitely should be. You can meet wonderful people that you can do podcasts with in the future. Yes. Um, <laughs> you may be able to get your job out of it. Um, so there's a lot of good benefits. But yep. we hope to see you at AAA. Thanks for joining us. And we'll see you next month. Take care.